I call for a courageous and responsible effort to redirect our steps and to avert the most serious effects of the environmental deterioration caused by human activity. I'm convinced that we can make a difference. That was Pope Francis addressing the United States Congress on the role of humanity in causing and addressing climate change. Our guest today also has a lot of interesting things to say on this subject. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we're talking about science and faith with climate scientist, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. And our correspondent, Shreya Dravasala, is back with another egregious example of sidelining science. Catherine Hayhoe is well known in environmental and scientific circles for her research and brilliance in the field of atmospheric science, and also for the easy, natural way she bridges ideological divides between scientists and faith leaders. An evangelical Christian, Dr. Hayhoe sees no incompatibility between her religion and her calling as a climate scientist. She's a professor in the Department of Political Science at Texas Tech University and the director of the Texas Tech Climate Science Center. She's also the founder and CEO of Atmos Research, a research and consulting firm that helps industry, nonprofit, and government clients understand how climate change will affect the way they work. In her spare time, Catherine hosts a bi-weekly YouTube series called Global Weirding that explains climate change in short, manageable chunks. Our correspondent, Louis Castilla, managed to catch up with her for a few minutes to chat about how science and the Bible provide similar lessons on climate change. They also talked about what keeps her going in the face of climate denial and that beautiful Texas wind energy. Take it away, Louis. Welcome to God Science, Dr. Hayhoe. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to have you on our show. Mm -hmm. My pleasure. I know you're extremely busy, so I'll just dive right in. Okay. So you're an evangelical Christian and at the same time a very high-profile activist scientist. Which came first? (laughs) I would say that uh, my faith is what drives me to act on this issue. As a scientist, it's much more comfortable to live out our lives in the ivory tower, to do our research, to publish our papers, and to go home at night knowing that we haven't received any hate mail and there's not going to be a new blog the next morning talking about something terrible that people think that we've done or said. But the reason why I study climate change is because it affects people. It affects real people today, and particularly if the poor and the vulnerable among us. We are not going to fix this problem if we bury our heads in the sand or in our ivory towers and pretend that it isn't real or that it doesn't matter or that we don't have to take action. And so my faith is what compels me to speak on this issue because I know it's the truth and I know that it's affecting real people today. Have you had any challenges reconciling faith and science in your work? One of the main challenges that I've confronted here in the United States is the reason why I decided to make my faith public. And that is the fact that among evangelical Christians in the U.S., only about a third actually agree with the science of climate change. Two-thirds don't. 
I should also note that the numbers are very similar for white Catholics. And that gives us a clue. It isn't actually anything to do with people's faith or what they believe about the Bible or God. It's the fact that in the United States, faith and politics have become so intertangled that for some people, their statement of belief is actually dictated first by their political party and only second by the Bible. And if the two come into conflict, they'll go with their political ideology over what the Bible says or a a religious leader like the Pope, in the case of Catholics. So this is what's both uh, an opportunity and a challenge. I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that the group I'm part of disproportionately rejects the science, I don't think I would have ever told anybody where I go to church on Sunday because that's not what scientists talk about when we gather around the water cooler. We talk about science because that's what we love and that's what we're there for. But I decided to let people know, uh, not just that I was a Christian, but also that my husband pastors an evangelical church, because people need to recognize that this is a real issue, number one. And number two, that the Bible, it doesn't mention climate change, but it has a lot to say about our responsibility for this world that we live in and our responsibility to care for people, especially, like I said, the poor and the vulnerable of this world who are being disproportionately affected by a changing climate. So how are people receiving your messages on both sides of the aisle? The situation in the United States is radically different from the situation in almost any other country around the world. When I went to Paris with the Union of Concerned Scientists, I went as a scientist. But when I was there, I met with the head of the World Evangelical Alliance, and he was an official delegate for his country, the Philippines. I met with other evangelical organizations from Europe, from the UK, from Africa, from around the world, who were all there in Paris because their faith compels them. This strange situation where somehow being a white evangelical or a white Catholic means you can't agree with the science of climate change, that is unique to the United States. And it is entirely because we have confused our faith with our politics. We are looking to our thought leaders in the political realm to dictate our position on issues on which the Bible is very clear, caring for and being responsible for creation and caring for and loving people who are poor and disadvantaged and who are being disproportionately impacted by a changing climate. You seem to be very motivated, despite the obvious challenges. So what drives you? What keeps you going? Well, I still am very much still doing the science, and that is what motivates me in the in the first place, is to do the science and to understand what's happening to our world. But I realized that doing the science today is not quite enough. It's as if you were running a low-grade fever, and the fever went up and down from day to day, but it persisted week after week and month after month. So you went to the doctor, and you said, doctor, I have this low-grade fever, and it's starting to produce these troubling symptoms. The doctor ran a bunch of tests and said, wow, I think you've got this thing that we haven't seen before. It's this new type of disease caused by your lifestyle, and I'm pretty sure you have it. And then you go to 10 other doctors, and at least nine out of those 10 doctors say, yeah, we're pretty sure that you have this this strange disease as a result of your lifestyle choices. And then the doctor just sits back in the chair and folds their hands. And you say, well, doctor, is it serious? And the doctor's like, well, I can't really say. You know, that's not my place to say. And they say, well, doctor, what am I supposed to do about it? Well, I, you know, that's not really my position to say, you know. I mean, that would just be ridiculous if the doctor diagnosed a serious problem and then just kind of sat back and said, well, you know, I can't really tell you if it's that serious and 
I'm not really going to give you any more information about it because that's not really my job. I mean, as, as scientists, we are the physicians of the planet. We have diagnosed this low-grade fever that the planet is running. We have determined without a shadow of a doubt that for the first time in the history of this planet, it is because of the lifestyle choices that we have made, depending on coal and oil and gas as our primary source of energy. And there are some very urgent choices to be made now if we are going to avoid the most serious and even dangerous consequences. And so any of us as a scientist, we have this information now, and people need to know this information. So for me, it was really a compelling motivation to step outside the ivory tower and to say, I'm a scientist, so I'm not going to tell you which policy is the best policy. You know, a doctor isn't a pharmacist. The pharmacist is the one who knows the exact type of medicine that would be best for this new disease. But I definitely can tell you that this thing is serious, and this thing is real, and I can speak to it firsthand. And I think this is very powerful because I have been in situations before where people will say to me, well, you know, those scientists are just doing it for the money or those scientists are just making up the data. And I can say to them, well, I'm right here and I'm looking you in the face. I am a scientist. I analyze the data myself. Here's how much money I make compared to how much money my colleague who just left a couple of years ago now makes at Chevron working for the oil and gas industry. It's a fraction of what I would make in industry, and I know that. So here I am, and here is who I am, and here is what I do. And when we're in this situation, they can no longer use these convenient excuses of, oh, it's just what those scientists say, because they're looking at me, and I am real, and I am this type of person, and they can't say, well, you know, you're just part of the liberal agenda, or you're just making this up as a hoax because you can't make money elsewhere. You'd be working at a gas station if climate change weren't real, you know, all the common things that people often throw at our faces. Gut Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Now, I know our listeners are standing up for science now more than ever. If you'd like to wear your science on your sleeve, which I do almost every day, pop over to the UCS store where you'll find Stand Up for Science pins, signs, t-shirts, and more. Go to store.ucsusa.org. Now let's get back to our interview. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing right now? Sure. My research focuses on three different areas. My first area of research focuses on evaluating the ability of global climate models to reproduce the regional scale dynamics that bring us a lot of our weather patterns like extreme heat, heavy rainfall, drought, and floods. I want to know, can we trust the climate models when they give us these predictions? And so my latest paper looks at all of the different climate models we have and their ability to reproduce the circulation patterns and to see whether those same patterns are what is producing increased risk of drought in the future. Um, then I also develop new ways to downscale global climate model output to the local level, to individual weather stations or high-resolution grids. And then the next part of my research focuses on translating this information, translating sound science into actionable science. And then the third thing I started to do since I moved to a social science department five years ago is I started to do a little bit more social science research, trying to figure out what difference does it make if we talk to people about a certain issue and we bring up the misconceptions or the myths first and show how they don't actually make sense before we tell them the true information or if we just tell them the true information. 
what difference does it make if we talk to people about an issue like climate change, but we frame it around common or shared beliefs, such as a shared faith or a shared concern about water? Uh, what difference does it make if we look at how climate has changed in the places where people live? Does it actually affect our opinions, what's happening where we live, or not really? Do we just you know, turn on the TV and go with whatever it says? Because I've learned that the barrier is not in the physical science, it's the barrier to action. We have known that climate is changing, that humans are responsible, and that the impacts are serious for decades. It's been 51 years since scientists were sure enough about this to formally warn the U.S. president. It's been over a century since the basic science was put together. So the barrier is in the social sciences, in understanding our human psychology, the way we interact with information, our political system. That is where the barrier is to acting on science. So right now you're in Texas. Texas is an interesting place because a large percentage of its economy is still linked to oil and gas, but there's also a huge clean energy sector with wind and solar in the lead. Can you talk a little bit about what the potential is for renewables in your state? Texas is a fascinating place to live. Texas is already one of the most vulnerable states in the entire country. Um, Texas gets, you know, our droughts and hail and winter storms and blizzards and tornadoes and hurricanes and everything. So we're very vulnerable. But Texas also has some of the greatest potential for clean energy. Texas has enough solar and wind potential to supply the entire country with electricity. In Texas, we already today get over 20% of our electricity from wind. We have entire towns, like the little town of Georgetown, just north of Austin, which is quite a conservative town, going 100% renewable because it's the cheapest way for them to get their energy. Fort Hood is the biggest military installation in the entire United States. It's in Colleen, Texas. And they just signed a new contract for wind and solar energy to save taxpayers $168 million. There is a program near San Antonio where they're taking out-of-work oil patch workers who lost their job when oil prices skyrocketed last year, and they're retraining them to do solar installations because the market is going crazy. Texas is a very interesting place to live because although many people here are very resistant to that idea that humans are changing climate, they're extremely accepting of the solutions in terms of investing in clean energy technology. So can we dare to be optimistic? It seems many people are taking the pragmatic approach and are switching to clean energy to save money, even if they don't believe in climate change. That's good, right? The issue today is that it's simply a matter of time. If we were back in, you know, the 1970s or maybe even the 1980s with that level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and that amount of global change, but we had all of the technological innovation that we have today, I would say we'd be in a really good place. The problem we have today is that these solutions are not coming online fast enough to avoid the dangerous consequences. That is why we need to accelerate the expansion of clean energy technology, not only for the purpose of climate, but because the United States is also in serious danger of losing the new clean energy race, the moon race of the 21st century. China has more wind and solar energy installed than the United States. They have wind farms that put our largest wind farms to shame. India is moving alongside very rapidly, and the United States is in serious danger of falling behind technologically. On a final note, I would like to go back to the beginning. How does your faith feed your research and vice versa? Science can tell us in the case of climate change, that it is real, it is us, 
it is serious. And depending on the choices we make, here are what the most probable outcomes look like. But science can't tell us what to do. That comes from our heart, from our values, from what's important to us, from what we love, from what we fear. And for many of us, for over 70% of people in the United States, many of our values come from our faith. One of the most interesting things I have learned through talking to my colleagues in the climate science community is that every single major world religion has as its core values care for creation, care for nature, care for the world, and care for people who are poor, who have less advantages than we do, who are vulnerable to the very types of weather and climate extremes that are being exacerbated by a changing climate. Thank you very much for talking to us, Catherine. We hope to have you back on the show very soon. I would love that. Thank you. And I would also encourage anybody who's interested to check out our little PBS digital series, Global Weird. It's available on our Facebook page and also on YouTube. They're little five-minute videos that tackle a lot of the questions you raise. Why is Texas the best and the worst when it comes to climate? How come the facts aren't enough? How can we talk to people as a scientist about this hugely politically polarized issue? And what do major world religions say about a changing climate? All of these questions are ones that we tackle in our global weirding weirding videos. You heard it, folks. (laughs) Great chatting with you. Of course. It's our pleasure. Back to you, Colleen. Thanks, Louis. And now, Shreya Durvasila brings us Sidelining Science. Before we wade into alphabet soup territory with the EPA, the BOSC, and the ORD, let's talk a little bit about federal agencies and where they even get their ideas for environmental and public health protections. U.S. federal agencies are supposed to make science-based decisions to keep us and our environment safe and healthy. They're the reason we don't have leaded gasoline anymore, or acid rain, or coal runoff in streams. Wait, we do have coal runoff in our streams now. Thanks, President Trump. Anyway, federal agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, maintain committees of scientific experts to help them objectively review the best available science, so then they can create policies and protections based on that science. That very concept is now in danger. Earlier in May, the EPA failed to review the contracts of half of the independent scientists who served on its Board of Scientific Counselors, or BOSC. The BOSC reviews the work of scientists within the EPA's Office of Research and Development, also known as ORD, on issues from chemical safety to air pollution to fracking. The people who serve on the BOSC are supposed to be drawn from, quote, a distinguished body of scientists and engineers who are recognized experts in their respective fields, end quote. Those nine people who weren't asked to keep serving were distinguished and recognized experts. Moreover, choosing not to renew members for another term is not normal for this EPA committee. There was no good reason to let them go. There may be a bad reason, though. An EPA spokesperson has confirmed that the scientists may instead be replaced with industry experts who, quote, understand the impact of regulations on the regulated community, end quote. That's right. This is another move to clear the way for regulated industries to do what they want. The BOSC is just one committee that's been affected, but there are many more at risk within the EPA and throughout the federal government. 
like the EPA's Clean Air Science Advisors, who help inform protections for air quality, and the Department of the Interior, where Secretary Zinke is taking steps to undermine the legitimacy of these committees. Trump's administration apparently thinks scientific advisors should be chosen based on their politics. We say that's sidelining science. Thanks, Shreya. That's it for this episode of Got Science. Next time, we'll be talking about North Korea with Dr. David Wright, a top independent expert on the capabilities of North Korea's missile program. Special thanks to Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. You can find Catherine's video series, Global Weirding, on YouTube. Our correspondent is Louis Castilla. Editing, engineering, and music by Brian Middleton. Sidelining science by Shreya Dervasala. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes. And I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. See you next time. <laughs>